0: Welcome to the Catholic Cafe, where all that the Catholic Church believes and teaches is served fresh daily. So come on in and see what's on the menu today.
1: Now, here's your host, Deacon Jeff Drzymski.
2: Greetings and welcome to the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff, sitting in the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. And Sitting here with Tom Dorian, Tom, how are you doing? I'm well. You know what? We've got some exciting stuff to do today. Now, I know, know you. Tell. I know you love the Bible. Who right? doesn't? Uh, now, I'm not talking about that Bible you read the one, the six pages, the hard cardboard right. things with all with the, pictures, the pictures on it that yeah. you stole from your yes. daughter. Yeah, yes. yes. Now I'm talking about the one with the you know, the seventy three books, the oh, big, one. big the thick one with all the big three dollar yeah. words yeah. in it. Well, we we brought somebody here to the Catholic Cafe that's going to help us shed a little light on the Bible. I see. That. Uh, and how important Sacred Scripture is. To our faith, and I think we'll all know who this is when I say his name. It's Doctor Scott Hahn. Yep. Scott, it's so good to have you here in the luxurious corner booth at the Catholic Cafe. It's great to be with you, Deacon Jeff
0: and Tom. Thank well, you.
2: you know what? I'm gonna, you know, I don't want to do this whole long introduction because we'll run out of time. But <laughs> you hold the Father Michael Scanlan Chair of Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization at Franciscan University at Steubenville. Uh, right. You've been teaching there since like 1990. Yep. Well, we only have like regular chairs here. <laughs> Uh, so not, there's nothing fancy, no fancy chairs, but we're, we're honored to have you here. And then you also are the president and founder of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. Right. Salvationhistory.com. Tons of online resources for Bible study for Catholics. Beginner, intermediate, advanced, whatever. And somehow, in the middle of you know all the extra time you have, you've managed to write some 40 books. Right. right? Well. Uh, which is fantastic. <laughs> uh, and I've got to tell you. Two of your books, "Rome Sweet Home" and "The Lamb Supper," it really have changed my life. I, it's, they're beautiful, wonderful. The, the "Rome Sweet Home" <laughs> is like God. it was like the first book I read when I was I was born and raised Catholic, and I reverted back to the faith. But one of the things that led me there was "Rome Sweet Home," and I know you've heard that story a thousand yeah, you times. You got to hear that. It long. does not get old. Yeah. You know, well, it, it's it's we fantastic. just celebrated
0: last month the twentieth anniversary of the publication of the book, and uh, Kimberly, and I just uh, began looking at all of the stories that we've collected over the last two decades. And uh, five or six hundred of them. And I mean, talk about never getting old. Everything is different. Every person's experience. And we really wrote the book in a way as a kind of, oh, therapy. Because I came into the church in 86. She came in in 1990. Mm -hmm. We wrote the book in 92 and 93. And we had discovered after four years of being separate, you know, that we had some communication skills to Mm reacquire. We went to counseling. And then we just thought, well, let's just tell the story. And then let's just work on doing it together and there was so much laughing some some crying yeah some apologizing and forgiveness and it was one of the greatest graces god has ever given to us as a married couple in 35 years we look back and just thank god for it
2: well it has certainly resonated with a lot of folks and i know we you have no that.
0: idea oh, it's beautiful uh, when we pu- i mean we really did it for ourselves and for our, our family and uh we weren't sure if it would get published we weren't sure what it would happen what would happen and now you know, over a million copies later, I think it's in
2: 30-plus languages, wow. and I've lost track. Well, I want to be wow. the president of the Scott Hahn Appreciation Society, because and, <laughs> and, 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 the other book is—and I still recommend this book as—it's it's my favorite spiritual, religious book, other than the Bible and maybe the Catechism of the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. right? Because there's some nuts and bolts there, but but The Lamb's Supper, that, what, when I read that, it just opened up so many doors It made me suddenly make this connection between the Mass and the book of Revelation, you know, the mystery book in the Bible. It was just beautiful. And I still recommend this, and I still have uh, uh, folks that ask me, like, well, what's a good book that I could, when they were getting back into their faith, you ought to read the Lamb's Supper. Mm -hmm. I'm glad to hear that. I mean, I really
0: am, because the experience of going to Mass for the first time that I recount in the book was as life-changing as anything in my experience, you know. And in so many ways, I'd also have to say that consuming the Word is sort of designed to be the sequel to the Lamb's Supper. Because what I recount in the Lamb's Supper is discovering, you know, after studying the Bible for years and years, going to my first Mass and discovering that the Eucharistic liturgy is the most scripturally saturated experience I've ever had. And so I I had to tell the story eventually, and I did when I got to write the book, The Lamb's Supper. But what I I didn't didn't get to tell was sort of the backstory because... At the time, I had the experience. I was a doctoral student at Marquette University. And I ended up becoming a Catholic like five years earlier than I expected. Yeah. Hmm. And, and as a result, I, I did a lot of study. I, I went back and basically reread the Bible. It's one thing to discover that the liturgy is biblical. Mm-hmm. But it's another thing to discover that the Bible is liturgical.
2: Isn't that beautiful? Oh, yeah. That's cool. And, and that, so that's why it's, it's really appropriate that we want to talk about in, sitting in our cafe setting. You know, we're consuming Perfect. the word. <laughs> right. right. We're, we're going we're gonna to talk about that. And, I, you know, let's look at that title, Consuming the Word. The first thing that stands out to me as again like like the Lamb's supper i can see the connection right you know and a lot of us catholics who go to mass and some of us who are just a little more knowledgeable about our faith will know that when we go to mass there's a liturgy of the word then there's a liturgy of the eucharist right and now you're kind of helping us to see that there's a connection between word and eucharist right between That's right. and so tell us what was the impetus what was the reason you you decided consuming the word would be your next work. Well, it was a conversation that I had with an old
0: high school friend that I ran into after 30 years. He had been a Catholic back in high school. i had been an evangelical anti-Catholic. We've been good friends, but I used to pray upon him in the cafeteria. <laughs> so he, he said, you know, when, when we ran into each other, he was absolutely shocked that I'd become a Catholic. He's like, okay, let me put it to you. Like you used to put it to me, where in the new Testament do you find the sacrifice yeah. of the mass? And he said, the Mass is just a meal. That's what you used to say, and that's what I believe. The the, the, the sacrifice is Calvary. And I said, well, Chris, we agree. The sacrifice is Calvary. But if we were there on Good Friday as Jews, you know, for us, a sacrifice in the Scriptures had to be in the temple, on an altar, with a Levitical priest. Whereas Jesus was crucified outside the walls, far from the temple. There were no altars. What we as Jewish disciples would have witnessed would have been a Roman execution." Mm -hmm. So the question the early church fathers put to me that I'll put to you now is how did a Roman execution get turned into the holiest sacrifice of all time? And the only way you can answer that is by looking at Good Friday in the light of what Jesus did on Holy Thursday when he instituted the Eucharist. Because the Eucharist was the Passover of the old covenant and the Passover was never just a meal. It was a sacrifice and the meal was a sacrificial communion. And if that was true in the old, it's not less true, but more in the new, where Jesus is the Lamb. So here are the disciples going through, you know, a familiar liturgy, the Seder meal, the Passover, when Jesus suddenly says this is my body, which will be given up for you. Like, right. What is that? Well, mm-hmm. He's ad-living. He's just improvising. And then later, the most important part is when he says, This is the cup of my blood. The blood, literally in the Greek, it's the blood of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. It's the only time Jesus ever uses the word testament or covenant, diatheke in Greek. He says, This is the cup of my blood, the blood of
2: the New Covenant, the blood of the New Testament poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. When you peruse the contents table of contents in this in this book consuming the word it's amazing but you've managed to get the phrase new testament pretty much into the title of every chapter (laughs) i
0: I had to because (laughs) you know when i was talking to chris i finally said to him listen carefully the the only time jesus uses the phrase the new testament is he's not he he says this is the cup of my blood the blood of the new testament you know he does not say write this in memory of me Hmm. he says do this What is this? The Mm -hmm. Eucharist. And what is the Eucharist? The New Testament. So the only time Jesus uses the phrase the New Testament, he's instituting the Eucharist. And I said, you know, if the Eucharist is just a meal, then Calvary is just an execution. But if the Eucharist is the Passover of the New Covenant, then suddenly we have the light that illuminates the fact that he wasn't losing his life on on Good Friday. He was giving it already Mm -hmm on Holy Thursday. Mm. He wasn't the victim of Roman violence, he was the victim of divine love. Mm. And that the New Testament in fact was a sacrament long before it ever started to become a document. According to the document, according to Jesus. Right. Mm. In Luke 22 and in 1 Corinthians 11, the first two times you find in the New Testament the phrase the New Testament, it's not talking about a document. Both Paul and Luke are talking about the sacrament of the Eucharist that Jesus instituted. When you read the New Testament and recognize that it never calls itself the New Testament, but it always calls the Eucharist the New Testament, that changes the way you're going to read the New Testament. To be a New Testament Christian means being a Eucharistic Catholic.
2: Well, so often we also, Mm -hmm. you've pointed out several in in other books and other talks you've done where where we talk about Jesus is the Word of God, right? That's we, right? We read that in John, and so and a lot of people look at that Word, especially from a Protestant background. You look at that and you hear Word, and you'd think, you know, I'm a, I'm a man of the Word, and you're, you're thinking about this leather-bound, gold-gilded-edged right. book with And we and love it. that book. It's right. the
0: inspired Word, but even more, we love Jesus, who is the incarnate Word, the Word made flesh. Right. And even the book says, faith comes by hearing, Galatians 2. It doesn't say faith comes by reading. As wonderful as it is to read, It's hearing the word and discovering that the word we're hearing is actually an echo of the very word made flesh, his preaching, his living, his dying, his rising.
2: That's the word we ingest. That's the word we consume. Well, let's talk about that consuming part, though. You know, you've titled this Consuming the Word. And and the the first chapter is is quite interesting, because it starts off when we're talking about people actually eating scrolls. Right. right? Ezekiel
0: 2, Revelation 10.
2: uh, Tom was going to ask this question, but I'll go ahead and ask it. I mean, is there going to be an edible version of this book that's being (laughs) sold? Is that what you're saying?
0: That's what I tell people now. (laughs) Have you eaten any good books lately?
2: (laughs) (laughs) So tell us about that whole idea of of eating the scroll. What What does that signify, and how do we... Well, both people, Ezekiel and John, were prophets.
0: And and, and God used them as instruments to prepare his people to recognize it's one thing to receive the word through an inspired prophet. But the prophets are pointing to how I want to give you my word in a way that surpasses your highest hopes and wildest dreams. And so get used to eating a book because along will come the word made flesh. And by the time he is done with his life and he's ready to die and rise, he's going to give you his body. And that's going to be the word in a whole new way, and it's going to fulfill the old word but transform it in a way that you never could have imagined.
2: Well, I'm just right now, I'm sure that uh, many of my uh, wonderful uh, the separated brothers and sisters, my Protestant friends who are listening to this show right now, probably just had to pull over to the side of the road because we're telling them to eat books, right? It's bad <laughs> enough that, that they hear that we eat Jesus, right? And so I just love the fact that you're able to make this connection and maybe give us a, a, a bigger picture here. We're stepping back and seeing it's not just Eucharist, it's not just word, it's not just liturgy, it's not just sacrifice, it's not just meal, it's all of these things together. You know,
0: it's why in the first century the New Testament was only and always used with reference to the Eucharist. We actually find not until 190 AD, over 150 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, is the first occurrence of the phrase, the books of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And even then, the 27 books weren't called the New Testament, they were referred to as the books of Of the New Testament, or why? Because the Eucharist is the New Testament. But these are the books that we bring out to read, proclaim, and explain in preparation for the celebration of the Eucharist. And since Mm. the Eucharist is the New Testament, we'll call these the books of the New Testament. And so, once again, history—you know—and it tells us why it was that the early church didn't have to sit around waiting for years wondering, "What do we believe?" You know, why don't one of you write a book? You know, like a gospel or an epistle. Because the fact is, Jesus said, do this in memory. And they all went out doing the proclamation of the gospel, baptism, and the Eucharist as well. Even though, as a matter of historical fact, over half of the 12 never ended up contributing a single book to the collection of 27 that we now call the New Testament. But not because they were disobeying orders, but because Jesus didn't say, write this. He said, do
2: this. And that's what they did. This is fantastic. We yes. have more to talk about here on Consuming the Word. Uh, we're going to take a break, but before we do that, we want to remind everyone at home that we have a wonderful website, www.thecatholiccafe.com. Also, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, send me an email to deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. And with that, we'll be consuming the Word right if we get back.
1: I'm Bester Zemski, and this is another great moment in church history. At the very start of his Gospel, St. John tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A few verses later he tells us, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. The Word that St. John speaks of is none other than the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So often when we hear the phrase, Word of God, we call to mind our Bibles, the written revelation of God, a love letter written by God to His beloved children. This image of the written word is actually only partially true. In fact, to achieve the fullest meaning of the word, Word, is to realize what St. John was telling us that Jesus Christ, the God-man, was the Word, the very breath of God sent to heal us, to nourish us, and to reconcile us to him forever. To be sure, then, recognizing the true identity of the Word of God has great implications when it comes to the Catholic teaching of the Eucharist. To truly consume the Word of God, one must consume Jesus. In the sixth chapter of his Gospel, saint john offers an account in jesus his life that has come to be known as the bread of life discourse in it we hear jesus tell his disciples time and time and time again that unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood you have no life in you he told them they must consume him consume the word of god many of those disciples called this a hard saying and refused to follow him any longer. If Jesus had meant this to be taken symbolically, he certainly would have called them back and told them that he was simply employing symbolism and speaking metaphorically. But that is not what he did. Instead, he let them leave, not because he no longer desired their company, but because they needed to know that he was speaking literally and prefiguring for us his true and very real presence in the Most Holy Eucharist. Let us not abandon our Lord like many of those early disciples, refusing to consume the Word of God, but let us cling to the Eucharistic Jesus like Simon Peter, when asked if he too would leave, boldly proclaim, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I'm Bess Trozimski, and this is another great moment in church history.
2: Welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. Here's Deacon Jeff. And we're back in the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. I'm sitting here with Tom Dorian and our good friend Scott Hahn, who's dropped by the cafe. And, uh, Scott, do we need more coffee or something, maybe a honey bun, <laughs> something to keep you going, keep that energy level up because you're such a busy guy? You know, that's another amazing thing is I was looking on your website. You're going to go, like, on four pilgrimages this coming year. friend. I'm on sabbatical this year. So oh. I prayed about,
0: what am I going to do on a sabbatical? And Kimberly and I just... Decided, yeah. You know, we've never been to Lords. We've never been to Fatima. Oh, we've never been to Guadalupe. Wow. I've been to Lords three times. I'm going again in May. It's fantastic. Oh, you're going to love it. <laughs> we're going to Fatima and then Lords in May. Oh, beautiful. And in the meantime, this semester we're basically I've got six kids, but now we've got eight grandkids. Oh, yeah. So we're doing a lot of travel where I'm going out speaking and especially strategically located where we've got grandkids. Fantastic.
2: <laughs> well, we, we appreciate you taking the time to be here uh, with us here in the Catholic Cafe. And so we're just talk- we're talking about the New Testament. Right. Immediately we think of book. All right, and you're helping us expand that vision and understand. But you know, also, it's very interesting how this ties in with this upcoming year that uh, the Holy Father has called, that we're going to have this year of the new evangelization. Right. And it's quite interesting. I mean, we got the New Testament. And this sort of new vision and understanding of the New Testament, thanks to this uh, book, Consuming the Word. But then also, how does this fit into the big picture of the new evangelization? Well, you know, John Paul called for the new evangelization back in 83. Right. When he came
0: to America and spoke to hundreds of bishops in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. But it was interesting because back then he targeted not 83, but 92 is the year that it would be officially launched. And people wondered why. And he explained because 92 would mark the 500th anniversary of the founding and first evangelizing of America. And back in 1492, you know, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, the most populous catholic countries were, you know, Italy, France, Spain, Germany. 500 years later, what are they? Brazil in first place, Mexico second and the US is third. Countries that didn't even exist back right. then are now the most populous catholic countries and the ones that once were are struggling to kind of recover their own spiritual identity. Mm-hmm. So the the implicit question is where are we going to be 500 years or even 4 or 300 years? And the only way to answer that is by getting involved in the new evangelization. Because what John Paul also explained is is something that Pope Benedict really understood. But I must admit, I didn't. The new evangelization isn't new because the church has finally got back into evangelizing. The the church has never stopped. There have been priests and religious and missionary societies for 2,000 years. But what is new about the new evangelization is the need that John Paul and Pope Benedict, now Francis, have identified. That is... We have to re-evangelize the de-christianized. We don't just baptize the ones that we've evangelized. The new evangelization is new because we've got to evangelize the baptized. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of stray sheep, a lot of people who've kind of, you know, wandered from the flock, so to speak. The largest religious group in the U.S is the Catholic Americans. The second largest is the Southern Baptists, but between the Catholics and the Southern Baptists are the non-practicing, ex-Catholics. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they're numbered in the tens of millions. Right, And that's not just true in the U.S., but really all around the world, especially in North, South, and Central America. So the new evangelization was really launched in 92. And I think a lot of people wondered, you know, why, why are we still talking about it? Because didn't it end in the year 2000? But I also discovered later on what Pope... Uh, Pope uh, Benedict and Francis both understood that the 90s were not the the decade of the new evangelization. John Paul called it the Advent season of the new evangelization. Like Advent has four Sundays, but there's still 48 left. So the 90s were like the Advent season. But the new evangelization was always intended to last long beyond my lifetime and probably yours, too. And so the new evangelization is all about re-evangelizing the de-Christianized. Something else that he came out and emphasized in 92 that Pope Benedict and Francis have also picked up on, and that is it must be based upon the Eucharist. He published this important article in the official Vatican newspaper called Base the New Evangelization on the Eucharist. Well, how do you do that? Because, you know, when non-Catholics evangelize, it's usually four simple steps. God loves you. You sinned. Christ died for that. Now you've got to choose. Right. But those four steps that lead us to a personal relationship are not, you know, the end game. As John Paul and Pope Francis have recently said, these are like the four steps. The first four steps of the prodigal son on the long journey back home to the father's house. There's still a long way to go. It's like, you know, it's like courtship, engagement, and marriage. You know, a personal relationship is a great place to start. Right. I had one with Kimberly. But that wasn't all I wanted. We got engaged, and that, is one of, you know, that wasn't all I wanted. You know, it was something that we led up to marriage. You know, So in, you know, we evangelize, then we catechize, and then we sacramentalize. But the fact is there are a lot of people who are sacramentalized who need to be re-evangelized.
2: And some of those people were sitting here in the cafe and just fell off their chair. They were moved <laughs> right. by the Holy Spirit <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah. I wondered which what was that was. So, yeah. Which, which was, it's so beautiful to see. So here's the thing, though. How does consuming the word... I mean, we're talking about the Eucharist here, right? But we're also talking about Scripture. We're talking right. about liturgy. We're talking about all of this. How is that going to, how are we going to package that in a way that these people who have fallen away are going to suddenly see the new light, to, to see the, right. the New Testament? Well, what flipped the switch for me was this
0: conversation I had with Chris, my old high school buddy, because he was a staunch evangelical Bible Christian who was now going after me as a Catholic. And in the conversations that we had over weeks and months, I explained to him, look, if the Eucharist is just a meal, Calvary is just an execution. But if the Eucharist is the Passover of the New Covenant, then suddenly we realize that the that the that the execution on Calvary is the consummation of the Paschal sacrifice that right. was initiated when he instituted the Eucharist. And for Chris that was a breakthrough. And so I said, If 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 Holy Thursday is what transforms Good Friday from an execution to a sacrifice, Easter Sunday doesn't just resuscitate the corpse, it's what transforms the sacrifice into a sacrament, which we can now do in memory of him because his body isn't bleeding, it isn't buried, it's resurrected, it's glorified, it's what we receive in the Holy Eucharist. Seven, eight months later, I discovered that in these conversations, he had read the Lamb's Supper, he read, Lord have mercy, the healing power of confession, And he basically heard me go through what later became the book Consuming the Word. And after about two months of silence, he called me one Saturday, out of the blue, jubilant. And I was like, why are you in such a great mood? Oh, I'm with Carol. We're driving back from the local Catholic parish. I'm like, why? We've been to confession for the first time in over 30 years.
2: "Wow."
0: And he's like, talk about free health care. It was awesome. (laughs) And and I'm like, I don't usually hear that much excitement about going to confession. He said, well, what we're excited about is tomorrow. We're going to receive the Holy Eucharist for the right. first time in more than three it's decades. Beautiful. That's when it, it clicked. This is the new evangelization. We're evangelizing the baptized. We're re evangelizing the de Christianized, in this case, the de Catholicized, basing it on the Eucharist and discovering that conversion is not just a once in a lifetime experience back then, it's ongoing.
2: You know, it's that's ever the hardest thing, that's the hardest thing to tell people because you it know is. You, you talk about you, even right. even kids, the normal the normal catholic grows up and thinks that that at 8th grade, you know they get confirmed, they graduate. That's right. That's it. Yep. Right? And right. so this helping people understand this concept uh, it, it really can be that, well, Jesus is going to do it. The Holy Spirit's going to do it. Right. But it's what we have, to, we have to hope and pray for.
0: Yeah. And the fact is friendship is the context in which we can do it. Because as Chris told me later on, you know, he goes to work and at the coffee break, he's by the water cooler. You know, and people talk about what movie they saw over the weekend or what book they just finished or what restaurant they visited. You know, he started talking about the fact that he grew up Catholic took it for granted, wandered away, and now for the first time he's come back and he can't believe how exciting it is, you know. And, I mean, nobody says, you know, why are you imposing your theater on me? Why are you shoving your CD down my – you know, when we talk <laughs> about the music or the movies or the books that we enjoy, that's what friends do. When we share the fact that the faith – you know, we're not shoving religion down people's throats. He said, I just shared the fact that I'm excited about my faith for the first time in countless years. Wow. That's amazing. And, and, and again, he told me a couple Catholics there at work, you know, we're like, okay, let's talk about this later on. One of them waited almost a month before he brought it up, you know, but to me, friendship is not only the the message of the gospel that God has entered into a divine friendship with us through Christ. It's also the medium or the context to communicate it because this is the most, most people won't write books or preach homilies, but they will have friends and family members. And as they share this in terms of joy, as they reawaken to their faith, they can share that and nobody's gonna
2: say, Hey, why are you teaching and preaching? No, I'm just sharing my excitement. No, that's beautiful. And you know what's so cool is I, I know we're not in heaven. I know this is this is not heaven. <laughs> but you know what I think you get a little taste of heaven, you get you know the veil gets pulled back a little bit. When you see that light bulb go on for somebody, that's God's exactly giving you right. a little bit of affirmation and just helping you along You know, when you're evangelizing, you're going to grow too. And you're going to get something out of this as well. You know, it was
0: funny because when I was talking to Chris on the phone in in ways that later became this book, Consuming the Word, I was actually driving to a seminary in Latrobe, St. Vincent's, where I was teaching every Monday. And it was interesting because every Monday I was putting aside my lecture notes and saying to the seminarians, you won't believe this conversation that I just had. And I shared this conversation with my seminarians
2: and they were like, Whoa, I can't believe this. this is exciting, you know. So I was able to share that. Thank you so much, Scott. We really appreciate this. Consuming the Word uh, is the book, and uh, we invite people to, to pick this up. Where, where are we going to find this book? Well, you can find it in any Catholic
0: store. You can get it online as well. Most Barnes & Nobles, most bookstores carry it. You know, Doubleday Image is the publisher. And it's consuming the word, the New Testament and the Eucharist in the early church. You probably
2: keep some in your trunk of your car, too, right? <laughs> I do, in Always. the back seat. Very good. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to be here oh, with it's us. It's my pleasure. All right. Well, let's close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many gifts you have given us, especially the gift of your divine word, both in written form and in the incarnate word, your living plan of salvation, Jesus Christ, sent to reconcile us to you forever. Help us to consume this word, to take it in and allow it to truly transform us into the bearers of truth that you call each of us to be. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Catholic Cafe. If
0: you'd like to contact Deacon Jeff, send an email to Jeff at thecatholiccafe.com.